Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. Don't give up if it's something that you want to do and your gut tells you you're meant to do, do it. Um, again, I wrote about it in my book where I said, I told my parents, you know, because when you're a young kid, you think 30 is so old. You said, I, I remember saying, I don't want to wake up and be 30 one day and go, I wonder what would have happened if I had ever gave that a shot. Don't do that. You'd rather wake up and be 30 and go, you know what? I was out there for five years. I was out there for seven years. It didn't work out for whatever reason. Uh, and then if you want to move on after that, then move on. But I say, if it's what you want to do, life's too short. Do what you want to do. Hey, everybody, welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. I hope all of you out there are doing well in these crazy, crazy times. And I'm not just talking about the pandemic. I'm talking about the effect on your mind and your psychological overall makeup after you watch the first presidential debate. I hope you're hanging in there, and as a country, I know somehow, some way, we will prevail. I'm really excited about the show today with Dan Cortez. This guy's incredible. He's had an amazing career. He's a great man, and I know you're going to find this podcast very, very inspirational. And I'm very, very grateful for all of you who have tuned in and who have come along for the ride during this very, very difficult time in our country. Hopefully this show has brought you some information, some inspiration, and has been impactful in some way, some shape or form in your life or your career. And if you need to reach me, you can do so at Barry Katz at Twitter or Instagram or at my website at barrycats.com. And without further ado, Let's introduce our guest today. I know you're going to like him a lot. You might know Dan Cortez as an American actor who played Perry Rollins on Veronica's Closet or Vic on What I Like About You. 
He first came into prominence in the entertainment business as the host of the Emmy Award-winning show MTV Sports from 1992 to 97. Soon after, Joel Silver tabbed him to make two separate appearances in the hit movie Demolition Man with Sylvester Stallone. He also landed the lead in the NBC remake Route 66. Later on in the 90s, he co-starred in the CBS drama Traps with Academy Award winner George C. Scott. He gained further recognition as Jesse Hansen in Melrose Place and played Jake Hansen's half-brother for eight episodes in the third season, but he was killed off in that season's cliffhanger finale. Cortez also played the lead of Jason in the TV movie The Lottery for NBC, which turned out to be the highest-rated movie of the year for the network. He also starred in the feature film Weekend in the Country opposite Jack Lemmon, as well as the HBO film Public Enemies. Cordes also appeared on the Emmy Award-winning series Seinfeld, playing Tony, Elaine's ultra-cool, good-looking rock-climbing boyfriend. It was in this episode, titled The Stall, that he was dubbed a mimbo, a male bimbo by Jerry. During rehearsals, Cortez improvised the line, step off, which became a catchphrase that Larry David insisted was used for the episode. Around 2000, Cortez starred opposite Kirstie Alley in Veronica's Closet, part of NBC's must-see TV Thursday night lineup. He also starred opposite Brooke Shields in the feature film After Sex. Cortez followed that up with the TBS film The Triangle opposite Luke Perry. In 2003, Cortez came back to comedy and was the lead of the sitcom Rock Me Baby. Additionally, he appeared in episodes of Eight Simple Rules, Locust, The Eighth Plague for Sci-Fi, and producer Mark Burnett tabbed Cortez to host My Dad is Better Than Your Dad for NBC. He also starred opposite Bob Saget as a series regular in the sitcom Surviving Suburbia. Most recently, Cortez hosted VH1's weight loss competition Money Hungry, did an episode of Hot in Cleveland, served a two-year run as the host of True TV's Guinness World Records Unleashed, and starred in the feature film Changing Seasons. For me, you know you've made it when Saturday Night Live mentions your name. And oftentimes, when Bill Hader was playing Stefan on Saturday Night Live, he would repeatedly mention Dan's name during the show's Weekend Update segment when he speaks of New York City's hot spots. I'm so happy to have him here today. This guy is a wealth of information, has had an amazing career, and it just keeps going and going and going. Please welcome my guest today. What an honor. Dan Cortez. Thank you. Thank you, Barry. Thank you for having me. All right. This is exciting. I'm happy to be here. Malibu Studio. Yeah. We're all set. Black Lives Matter protests on the corner. How did you like that out there? Honk your horn. (laughs) They're staring me down. Did you not? I just was in shock that there was a protest in Malibu. Yeah. Yeah. I know my kids received an email two days ago from a girl that said, I'm going to, I'm trying to organize a protest. They look like high schools. They are. And then my daughter wanted to go. And then at like three or four o'clock, then the curfew was six. Then she gets another email saying, Protest canceled. And I said, I don't know if that really, if you're protesting, shouldn't you still go <laughs> and protest? They're like, no, protest canceled. I said, well, I guess it's kids in Melbourne. It's like, well, curfew can't be out there past six. So 
Um, I have so many questions to ask you, and a question I have to ask you okay. is almost a statement. All right. Because I remember this one time, I believe it was Jay Moore and I okay. went to pitch a show at Lifetime, and we were so excited, and we get through with the entire pitch, and the president of Lifetime at the time looks at us and says, really wonderful job, great show. That's a little too lifetime for us. No. And I thought to myself after reading your book, <laughs> there was a story in there where there was a breakdown. And for those of you who don't know, mm -hmm. the breakdowns come out and they have what a role is or a job is for auditions. It could be commercial, could be scripted, could be reality hosting. Yeah. And there's a breakdown that comes out that says looking for a Dan Cortez type. Yeah. And... You go to the audition and they say to you that you're not Dan Cortez enough. I, you know what, Barry? It was my manager said, slam dunk. This is Gatorade. They're, this is going to be the easiest money you ever made. It's going to run for a year. You just need, you can finish it all in a day. But they're looking for a quote, Dan Cortez type. He picks up the phone and says, even better, I've got Dan Cortez. They say, great. Send him in. We'll, you know, give him the sides and everything. So I'm in the booth and reading all this extreme Gatorade stuff. And the only note that they kept giving me was, give me more Dan, give me more Dan. And it's one of the things I address in the book where I was just like, I'm not really quite sure. I didn't know if that meant louder. I didn't know, you know, so dude, what more Dan? So I kept doing it, kept doing it. And then uh, they were like, great. That was wonderful. That's, you know, I don't know what else. And I said, I specifically remember the sound tech in the booth just giving me like, way to go. Great job on the way out. I'm thinking, <laughs> done deal even the sound tech gave me the thumbs up i get in the car call my manager maybe 10 15 minutes later he said yeah it's not gonna go not gonna go any further and i thought why i even got the thumbs up from the the sound tech he said yeah they said you weren't you weren't just dan cortez <laughs> that really messed with me though for for the longest time because then you know as an actor it's like well i don't know what that means so then you start trying to figure out, well, what do people want me to be? They say to be yourself, but then I thought I was being myself. But then if that wasn't working, that's not what they're looking for. I found myself, you know, over the years, then just trying to, even when I'd meet people on the street that recognize me from, you know, different shows or MTV or whatever, and you try and, okay, I need to act a certain way because they're expecting Dan Cortez. I gotta, I gotta give them Dan Cortez. So, um, yeah, I didn't, I didn't get that Gatorade spot, but um, what always interests me about your career, and it's truly fascinating, and we get into it, you're going to, the audience, I think, is going to be really blown away by it because you. you're one of those guys that, and I've represented people like you as a manager in the past. Yeah. A guy who literally could roll out of bed in the beginning or walk onto a set when you weren't sure if you were going to get an audition or not, or improv a line or whatever it is. And for the most part, you got the gig. Now, later on, it's sure. not always that way, but in the beginning, it's just an amazing thing. And sometimes you work with artists and I've 
work with many different artists. I remember there was a young comedian that I worked with who was part of a comedy team. You'll remember Red Johnny and the Round Guy <laughs> yeah. from MTV. Yeah. So Red Johnny is John DiMaggio, who's the voice of Bender on Futurama and many yeah. things. And so I remember we signed him to a voiceover agent and his first audition he booked. And so, well, where do you go from there when he tells you, well, Barry, I didn't really prepare for it. I didn't really, I just went in and winged it and I got the gig. And to another extent, Chappelle, I remember the movie <clears throat> The Nutty Professor. There were many, many tries to get him in to do the audition. And similarly to you on MTV Sports, he was the last guy to go in for Tom Shadyak, the director. And at the last minute, I remember him telling me, Barry, can you get me a towel, some kind of white towel somewhere on the lot? To... I'm like, okay, yeah, well, sure. And I said, what's going on? He said, listen, I, I just thought to myself, I'm going to do a combination of the least respected Def Jam comic <laughs> combined with the energy of Charlie Barnett, the greatest street yeah. performer of all time. But I need a towel because I want to pretend I'm wiping off sweat. I got the boxers on so I can pull my right. pants way down. And he got the gig. And so you've always been in situations where I know you're a big believer in preparation and being prepared right. and being ready. But the evidence shows all the way from your first play when you were a little boy through MTV Sports yeah. and even with Burger King. Yeah. That you didn't really have to do much but be yourself. Sure. Yeah. So what do you say to somebody who's killing himself, pounding the pavement, and you're the guy who's, for instance, MTV Sports, and you'll tell the story. Right. But I remember at the time, I used to tell your story 30 years ago to people or 25 <laughs> years ago to people because I was around New York. I was around the MTV scene. Yeah. And I always used to tell people, just hang around long enough. Yeah. Just hang around, be like that fly that they're like, what? just keep poking the bear. Yeah. And hopefully you'll get your shot. Yeah. It might not be ideal, but when you get it, you'll have trained for it your whole life with <laughs> yeah. how pesky you were. Right. And that's how you were. And that's what happened. And yeah. so I want to know how you go on and prepare for things that you need preparation for when early on you didn't even need the preparation. Right. The, I find the stuff that I prep for, um, and this is probably bad to say, acting, auditions, always prep for. That to me was something that you had to, I couldn't just go in and, and wing that. Um, so I would always prepare for acting auditions or gigs hosting stuff i never prep for. i would just be like let's go all right but acting auditions it should be noted that you never took an acting class right i took well i took acting i'd never signed up for an acting class in la before you started auditioning for acting i had acting classes in college and i acted in a it was so bad. I shouldn't. It was called General College. It was a soap opera. I went to University of North Carolina and it was a soap opera written, produced, directed, everything by students. And uh, 
the I think that served the purpose for me, if nothing else, because the acting was my acting was horrible in it. Um, but that got me comfortable in front of a camera. Oh, this is a, learning technical terms. And, oh, that's what that means. OK, this is what. OK, great. That served that purpose. Billy Crudup was actually in that with me. Wow. And the dialogue that was written. Was he as good an actor as you back then? Oh, my God. You know what? We would. I bartended at a bar in Chapel Hill and the show. The Four Corners. The Four Corners. And the um, the the show would air on public access on Monday nights. Well, one of the nights I bartended was Monday night because I was a bad bartender. So they would give me that night. The and so everybody would from the crew would come in and watch the show at my bar because we had a big screen TV and there'd be nobody else in there. And. You know, the dialogue, you know, it's a college soap opera. And I remember telling Billy at one point, just like he even then could make that dialogue work where you'd watch it. And they would be the only because normally you'd watch and everybody laugh and have a good time because it's very campy. And his whole storyline was University of North Carolina in 1988. He was in an interracial relationship was the storyline for his character. And. Look, I'm getting goosebumps. He would make it he would make it work and sell it. And you're talking about me not necessarily having to work for stuff at the beginning of it. It's a great segue to Billy because I had gotten the MTV job uh, probably two years into it. And I was I had flown back to New York for some work and I had called a friend of mine who lived in New York. Four o'clock in the afternoon, meet me at this bar. So go meet at a bar for a drink. There's nobody else at the bar. It's a big bar. Guy sitting at the end of the bar having a drink. Don't even look at him. We're sitting there talking maybe 20 minutes. The guy from the end of the bar comes up, taps me on the shoulder, and it's Billy. And he looks at me, and he, he was at NYU at the time um, in their theater program and just said, like, you did it. Because I, right after college, two years after college, I was on on MTV, I had a show on MTV. So he's like, what did you do? What should I do? What did you? And I remember telling him, I have, no, I have no clue. It happened so fast for me. And then when he told me he was at NYU, I said, you're doing what you need to be doing. That's, you're fine. Because the guy was always just naturally such a gifted actor. And, you know, look, that came to fruition with him too. Look at his career. So, um, but yeah, I mean, the preparation for me always came through the acting, but I didn't. I had my very first show I got was Root, a remake of Route 66. Uh, it was a summer replacement show for NBC. Your very first acting. Acting gig, yeah. And tell our audience how many auditions you went on for before acting that. before you booked that. How many failed auditions before you booked your first gig? I couldn't even tell. Not a lot. Not a lot, but it was also at that time, I wouldn't, people were like, he's a host, he's an MTV guy. Cause it was different than it is now. So it wasn't like people were requesting hosting guys to be acting just for our audience. So, you know, just how things have changed. Yeah. So before when you took a hosting gig, it was like the kiss of death. You would never, it was act. like you would never get an acting gig. Yeah. Now they're taking Academy Award winning actors and asking them to host. Host game shows. Yeah, host game <laughs> shows, which if I could speak freely, it's a very dangerous thing to do because 
Yeah. I'd like to see in the next five years how many actors who took a game show hosting gig come back to do the same kind of work and make the same kind of money in films that they made before. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think it's going to happen. And I agree with you. Like Whoopi Goldberg won an Academy Award. Yeah. She's never gotten to that point again, but she's made millions and millions and millions of dollars. It remains to be seen whether people like Jamie Foxx can make the seamless transition. And somebody's got to, but I don't think anybody has yet. No. And so in the early 90s, that was, you know, there, those, it wasn't that I was given that job, but I just didn't have the opportunity. Nobody wanted to see me. So with the success of MTV Sports, then that was back in the days when they would do development deals, which was, I wish they'd bring those back. Um, and but, for our audience, development deals was where they would give you a chunk of money to hold you for a year right. uh, to develop shows for you. If you turned down one, you were okay. If you turned down two, you were okay. If you turned down three, you had to give back a percentage right. of the money or whatever. <laughs> yeah. And so sometimes you develop your own things. They'd say no. Right. And then they'd pair you with somebody they had a deal with. And then, yeah. you know, you could figure something out that way. The um, So Route 66 came out. We were actually approached by NBC for that. And James Wilder uh, was already attached to act opposite me. Harley Payton uh, wrote the script. And um, having not really grown up watching the show because it was a little bit before my time, but knowing enough about the show that uh, that was the first show that I did there. But they had and NBC wisely um, said, OK, we're going to have we really want to have this great dynamic between you and James. It's basically you two the entire series. You're in a car. You need to have this banter. So they that was their excuse to go. We're getting you an acting coach. So we're going to have you guys work. And James was trained. And um, so we worked with this woman in uh, Hollywood for the first two episodes. You did or he did? both of us um, because she was trying to create, which I didn't even to this day, don't really agree with where she's trying to create an acting dynamic where I mean, in my mind, I was like, let me just go to a bar with James and have a couple beers and get to know James and let James get to know me. Tell our audience what your acting coach told you that you agreed with and what you didn't agree with. Well, first off, she asked me, here's what I didn't agree with. Everything, everything, every line, because we'd have to go through every line, had to be related to something sexual. Even when I'm talking to James, it's like, I can't remember exactly what the scene was, but she, it was something, I was eating something in the scene and she's like, but you really need to enjoy that. And I remember her asking me, do you like, did, like when you were in college, did you like sorority girls? And I said, well, I like pretty girls. I don't know if it's sorority. Okay. So write down, she had me write down in the margin, blow job from a sorority girl. So these were the type of notes that I was making on my script. So her technique was relate everything to sexuality. Yes. How old was she? Probably at the time, mid forties. Got it. Yeah. Interesting. Well, actually I didn't never thought of that. It probably worked for her then mid forties. I'm just thinking about how old you were and how old I was. Were. I was 23 or 24. Got it. Um, 
And James loved that because I think he actually had a thing for her. Um, but uh, so that uh, we're at the table read for the pilot and I'm sitting, I can't remember who I was sitting next to. And somebody saw that in the margins of my script and was like, what, what is that? And I remember I'm like folding it back on. These are notes. These are my acting notes. So that is what I, I didn't agree with to a certain extent as far as creating a dynamic between he and I. Um, but what I didn't know, having been green, just not taking too many acting classes at school or even professional acting classes, was she had asked me at one point, <clears throat> what have you had to go through in life? Your parents divorced? No. Either one of them dead? No. Either one of them cancer, anything bad ever happened to them? No. What about brothers and sisters? I get along with them all. Grandparents? I said, well, my dad's parents were both passed away before I was born. What about your mother's parents? They're both alive. They divorced? No, they're married. She said, you've never had to deal with anything. So you need to work on having to pull these emotions from somewhere else. And I remember thinking at the time, whatever, early 20s, bullshit. But uh, having gone through, you know, at 52, having gone through some things um, now to get to certain places as far as for auditions or gigs, so much easier for me now having experienced things as opposed to uh, feel it as opposed to try and fake it. Hey everybody, I hope you're enjoying this episode as much as I am. If you made it this far and you haven't fallen asleep yet, then you must be the type of person who's serious about having a career in the comedy business. That's why I'm offering you my blueprint for success, a one-of-a-kind all-access pass into my knowledge and experience after over 40 years of working with the best of the best in this crazy entertainment industry. I'll tell you all the stories, all the philosophies, give you all the great special guests, and even give you one-on-one -on -one private consultations to help you expand, enhance, and skyrocket your comedy career. Just go to barrycats.com and click on Blueprint for Success to learn more about my groundbreaking digital academy that I've created just for you. With it, we can take your career so far that one day, instead of listening to this podcast, you'll be interviewed on it. What was something she told you that you still think about to this day that actually worked? I don't know. I, I mean, I think that dynamic of her telling me that, having to just find things in your life that you've had to deal with the other stuff the whole sex stuff just went i didn't agree with because one of the things when i'm sitting across from you that i mean to me you know i mentioned jay more earlier yeah. and he's probably one of the few people i could say this about <clears throat> besides you is that you know he hosted gigs yeah yeah but he also worked with significantly legendary hall of fame lifetime achievement award kind of actors right i mean and he's been directed by clint eastwood he's worked with so many yeah. great actors and when i look at you you hosted a show that probably had a little less substance than a scripted project yeah. but two people you worked with to me are probably in the top 10 greatest actors of all time, George C. Scott and yeah. Jack Lemmon. Yeah. 
How do you walk on a set? I understand how you walk on a set with Route 66 and you're thinking, I'm a little bit anxious, but I can do this. Right, right. But how do you walk on a set with a guy who literally, technically speaking, on paper has more talent and more yeah. on his resume than you have, you know, in in your whole ever. lifetime career yeah. ever. And how do you how do you walk on a set and how do you make it work as an actor knowing that you're working with one of the greatest yeah. of all time? The experience with George was um, that was a series we did for CBS, a one hour series called Traps. It came out the same year as NYPD Blue. Stephen Cannell wrote it and produced it. We shot it in Vancouver. And I remember George saying, you know, you got Dennis Fran showing his ass. I'm not going to show my ass. And he, was, he would read the scripts and go, if this show aired in 73, it'd be a hit. Nobody says perp anymore. Or what? So he was kind of, he had issue with, because it did feel dated when you were NYPD Blue at the time when it came out. It was handheld camera and it felt so real and it was just, and we were very, again, it was CBS, but very straightforward cop show. Um, but I'm very proud of it. But George, what they had us do was before we went to Vancouver, uh, Stephen at his house here in LA had George and I over for dinner to meet each other. We hadn't, I didn't read with him. I didn't, this was the first time I met him. Before you get into the story, I think you should tell our audience a little bit about Stephen J. Cannell, one of the greatest producers of yeah. all time. He, uh, oh my God, you can just, the plethora of shows that he wrote and produced. So as far as getting things rewritten, if it was especially something he had written, it wasn't going to change. Just let's do it the way that it is. So uh, even if George C. Scott said, I want to change this line, he wouldn't do it. On the day, George would just change the line. Stephen wasn't there on the day, so George would just change it. And... George had in his contract, and I believe I put this in the book, he worked eight hours a day uh, because of his age. And rightfully so, he deserved to work eight hours a day. He's Academy Award winner, George C. Scott, Patton, Dr. Strange. You know, so we would shoot, we'd set up for the master shot of the first scene. Action. He had a little Casio watch. He'd go, meep. His time, his eight hour timer would start. And we'd be in the middle of, he'd be doing the greatest take ever if that thing, the alarm went off. Good night, everybody. Get up and leave. And so it was a... Even in the middle, and even if they said, George, would you mind if we just finished this? He that would, He wouldn't do it. So probably third or fourth day of shooting. He, um, that happened. So we were on like a five. We were on a break. And the director was like, we're kind of falling behind to George. There was maybe 15 guys standing around the craft service table, and I'm talking to some crew guys, but you can hear an earshot what the director's saying to George. And he's kind of telling him, like, hey, you know, because everybody walked on eggshells around George. You don't want to piss off George. And so he said, you know, we're not going to make the day. We're already falling behind. We're getting... And George kind of loses it on the guy. And as he raises his voice and says something, it got quiet. And right as it got quiet, as this all happened, I went... <laughs> And then the entire, it was like the ear, and everybody turned and looked at me. So I just was like looking for a donut or anything else. And so I look back up and everybody's staring at me. Look, I'm already starting to sweat. Think about it. And George's like, come here, come here. 
And I'm like, no, I'm good. George, don't worry. I'm good. I'm fine. I'm sorry. You know, it's one of I'm sorry. Come here. So I, it was like the slow walk of maybe that 10 to 15 feet. And I'm thinking through my mind. I'm 24. I'm like, George C. Scott is going to pat and slap me right across the face in front of like the crew. So I walk over to him and he gets in my face and he grabs my arm and he goes, what's so funny? And I said, I apologize, George. I said, I, this is my fault. I shouldn't have laughed. I really wasn't even laughing. You know, I apologize. What's so funny? And he wouldn't let me go. So I said, I was just laughing. And I've never, I've never told this story on camera. <laughs> I was, I, so I just said, I, I'm sorry. I laughed. I was laughing because you're just, you're fucking with him. And I, and I shouldn't even laugh at that. And he pulls me closer and goes in my ear. He goes, that's because I can. <laughs> and slaps me in the face. And goes, get the fuck away from me. So I kind of turn around and start walking back. And everybody's like, what did he say? What did he say? What did he say? And I just go, I wouldn't mess with him. He hears me say that. That, for some reason, endeared me to him for the rest of the time that I knew him in his life. Because it was like, okay, I let Dan in on the secret. And he's got my back. So when we would shoot, you were asked what it's like to work with George. It was great working with George on master coverage. We would do masters and George's coverage for every scene. George's eight hours would be up. George would leave. We'd go back to the first scene of the day. And I would do all my coverage with my stand-in reading George's lines. And my, so we shot in Vancouver. My stand-in was a red-headed stand-up comedian from Canada who had a very thick Canadian. So it got to the point after, and I love the guy, his name was Dan as well. I ended up telling the director, a couple of producers, I'm like, Dan can read the lines. I, I don't want Dan as my, as my eye line. I said, just put an X on something or what I said, because I can't, I start to laugh when I'd look at him. And what Dan's suggesting is there's normally they try to get a stand in that sort of has the physical resemblance of George and not that it's George, but for the actor to just feel like, yeah, I'm with somebody like George. Yeah. But if you can't do that, then they'll have somebody read off camera and they'll put an X where his eye should be. And then the other side of the coin that happens sometimes, sometimes an actor will feel bad that they've left the actor out there on their own to read the things. And sometimes they'll come back out of the dressing room and they'll read the lines off camera right. so that it's, they're not in the shot, they're not in makeup, they're, but they're at least helping. Yeah. George, so was, George was gone. <laughs> George, and he even told me, he's like, look, I'm too old. You, you can do this, you're a young guy, you can do it, I'm, I'm too old. He said, because today it'll be eight and a half hours, then it'll be nine, next thing you know, I'm working 12 hours a day, I can't work 12 hours a day. So you're saying that you were going to the house initially. Oh, with yes, to me. So that's we met there at Stephen Cannell's and that was it was a very, uh, very nice dinner, very cordial dinner, talking about every everybody got along. One of the things that was great for me as far as George was concerned was George had no idea who I was. George didn't know MTV. George didn't know commercials that I'd done. George. He just knew me as, this is Dan Cortez, he's the actor that's going to play opposite me. So he didn't know that you didn't have formal acting no. training, he didn't know anything? No. And when you auditioned for that show, obviously you went through the casting process, you go with the executive producers, but then the last audition you have, Steven 
is there. Right. And so he's, before any test deal is done, he's, he's looking at his final choices. You're in there. Yeah. He knows from your resume you're not necessarily a thespian who's right. done a lot of work. Right. So I presume the first place you test is with the studio, whatever studio it was at the time. Was it CBS Productions? It was CBS Productions, yeah. So you test with them. You're in the lobby. The other actors that are testing for the role, are any of them working today? or do you know? I don't even recall. How many were there? Do you remember? Probably four or five. So you go in. You test with four or five with the studio. You get the call. You're going to the network right. tomorrow or whenever it next is. Next day, I believe it was. And how many of those people were gone by the next day? And how many were left? I think when we went to the network, it was just me and two other guys. Got it. So now there's three guys. Both of them have more acting experience than you. Yeah. Probably both of them are more well-known than you. Uh, yeah, I guess. I don't really remember them. So remember. tell the audience how you prepared for that, knowing that you're going to audition and read for the network president, who at the time was Les Moonves. Yeah. So he's in the room. He was always in the room yeah. for those drama things. Yeah. And it's like E.F. Hutton commercial. Yeah. Uh, you're not there, but when you leave, everybody just turns and they look and hear what he has to say. And yeah. he makes the decision. Yeah. Who gets the gig? Not Stephen. Now, right. Stephen could fight for somebody, but Les was the, right. the overpowering vote. So you're going in, you're preparing, knowing that the two people you're going up against are technically speaking perceived to be better than you and perceived yeah. to be a better chance of getting the role than you. You have the least chance of getting this role, but you know you're going in in that way. How do you prepare to pick off people who are technically more experienced <clears throat> and more desired and you're the third choice? I didn't look at it that way. I looked at it as probably because I was green I looked at it as I wasn't trying to like pick off these guys. I looked at it as I was I was the best choice. That was maybe it was ego or maybe So you thought you were the best choice to yeah. work with George C. Scott yeah. over these two actors that had a hundred episodes, I don't know two hundred episodes had. of television. Well here's the thing. The fact that I can't recall who they are means that they you know I would have remembered if it was somebody that's still working today. Um, but again, I don't know, you know, as you said, less makes that final decision. So my whole thing was just, look, it's not like, um, you know, and it's even having dealt with George, something I wrote about in the book. It's not like it's acting. I, I'm not looking to, you know, score more points than the other two guys. What I, my thing was like, go in, do the best you can do. Whatever's meant to happen will happen. Um, and, you know, it didn't matter how much the other guys had done. Who knows? On that given day, maybe they got a little nervous. Maybe they you never know how it's all going to flow. So you out. go in your final test. Yeah. Did you feel like driving home? You had the gig. Uh, I thought I did a good job. Um, how soon before you got the call? When I got home. That awesome. was before cell phones or anything. So I got home. I got the call. So going back to the house. I keep going back to the house, your first yeah. thing together uh, with, with, with all George. of them. What was that like? That was, I mean, like I said, it was a great dinner, very cordial. And it was Stephen just, 
sort of feeling us both out and seeing if we had any dynamic together. And, um, you know, I, I was born and raised, grew up in Pittsburgh. Like I said earlier, my dad was an Italian immigrant. I was the youngest of four, so I came from a very humble household, sort of had to work for everything, started working when I was 12. Um, so George appreciated that, I think, from me, just that, um, you know, I'm very real person. I think one of the things that I, I like about myself is that I don't feel that I come off, and I don't mean this in a derogatory way, but very actory. I, um, off camera, I, I just try to be as genuine and um, as respectful as possible to everybody I work with. Um, so that dinner was great. Um, but then we left, I think it was like two days after the, after that dinner and we were up in Vancouver and, and, uh, started and started going. And the thing was with George working, so only eight hours a day, I was working overtime every day or every, every day. So then it would come to the point, you know, they have to ask you, they can't just force you force call the next day. They have to approve it with the actor. So I, okay, great. Okay, great. But at the same time, I was, I would leave on the weekends to go shoot episodes of MTV sports. So I was in Vancouver. Then I went one time to, uh, the, uh, pro bowl in Hawaii and then flew back Sunday night to be at work 6am Monday morning. So I went close to 40 days where I didn't have a day off, uh, because of all the forced calls. And I was working sometimes 12 to 14 hours a day consecutively. So that, but the force calls. Oh yeah, I, that's hey. I was twenty four. Yeah, you're getting some extra money yeah, for that. Yeah, whatever. It's twelve hundred bucks per force call. So it's like you do thirty of those in a row. That'll work. That's you know. I look. Which was I, more money than you made on MTV Sports for an entire year. For an entire year. Well, yeah, that's a whole another story we could get into. But I'm still. I still think twenty dollars is a lot of money. So that was, you know, for a young kid, that was great. But um, the story that I wrote about in the book with George was on my first or second day off from all the forced calls, I was, we were in Vancouver, it was a Sunday and I was down in the lobby of everybody stays at the Sutton place. I was down at the bar having a pizza and watching some football and I was the only person in there and um, had a beer and had asked, I don't know why I even thought about it. George and I got along really well. And I think a lot of that had to do with George breaking. I mean, I used to get knocks on my door on my trailer door and I think, you know, come on in. I think it's wardrobe, whatever. George would stick his head and go, you want to run lines, darling? And George, I remember, it still blows my mind. I'm like, George, he's got, is walking into my trailer to run lines now. And what was amazing about George was he'd run each scene one time and go, thank you. See you out there. And the guy. Which I, is very generous, by the way. Yes. Because normally they don't. I remember just using Jay Moore as an example again, because we talked yeah. about him relating to you. I remember when he was doing Hereafter with Matt Damon and Clint Eastwood was directing and he never had a director like Clint Eastwood. Sure. And Clint Eastwood is like George C. Scott. It's an eight hour day or whatever. And then we're done. It's, it's a short. And he knocked on Matt Damon's trailer. He said, I was wondering, could I just run these lines with you? Jay just starts running the lines and halfway through he realizes that Matt Damon's like, what are we doing here? He's like, okay, I'm good. Yeah, Thank I'm good. You. Yeah. <laughs> The no, and that was, I mean, amazing. I'd never we shot six or eight episodes of the series, and uh, don't ever recall George. And he had a lot of cop 
jargon dialogue never missed never missed a line and i recall asking him one time too like how do you you know i don't know how you do this and he's like when you've done it as long as i have you know it's just sort of second nature but we had bill nunn was on that show piper laurie lindsey krauss so it's really there were actors lindsey krauss house of game yeah so i had uh a huge safety net for me. So maybe going back to your question too, maybe that in Steven's mind or in Les's mind, they were like, Hey, we know we've got enough of a safety net there with all these other, uh, highly achieved actors. Here's uh, an interesting question. For yeah. you. Trapeze artist. Yeah. Doing a triple somersault. That's the task at hand. Okay. Who's a better trapeze artist? The one that performs with a net or the one that performs without the net? Who's better? They have to do that one thing. That's their thing they're doing, the triple. The net's not going to define if someone's better than the other one. So you think they're equal, no net or the net? Yeah, the net has nothing to do with it. Why What's do you the, think that? If you, it doesn't, you could have Michael Jordan doing one without a net and an actual trapeze artist doing with it. It doesn't, the net has nothing to do with how well they perform it. So, it would only affect them, presumably, mentally. See, in my thought process... <clears throat> the net has nothing to do with the actual triple somersault. The trapeze artist who has the net doing the triple somersault is not as good a trapeze artist as the one without the net. Because the guy without the net, he knows that if he doesn't do the triple somersault better than anybody else, he's going to be dead. Okay, I disagree. That's okay. I think I think the net has nothing to do with it. Got it. What if there's a legal ramification for the company that runs the circus that says you have to do it with a net no matter what because I don't want to have in case something. You could have you could do it with the net and be better. What if this bar breaks off and you fall? That's true. I so, didn't think about the bar. Yeah. So I want to just if before I go on to the next thing, because I think it's really important to to see how people interact and work with great, great actors that anyone in the world would say. This actor is in another league. So take our audience through the gig you booked with Jack Lemmon. The um, I only had one scene with Jack in that it was called Weekend in the Country and uh, Martin Bergman uh, directed it, wrote it. He was married to Rita Redner. Uh, she was in it as well. Faith Hill. I met or Faith Ford. He's still married to Rita Redner. Are they still married? Great people. Um, Richard Lewis was in it. Dudley Moore. Um, Nick Bakai. And we shot it in Temecula. And uh, Christine Lottie was my love interest in it. Um, but I played, I was a very, uh, had maybe four or five scenes, um, a very, a holistic masseuse named Thunder who then had an affair with Christine Lottie's character. And I had, there was a scene with Dudley where I had to give Dudley Moore a massage and Jack Lemon where, uh, and the scene with Jack was Jack just with his face down in the massage pillow, just rambling on about something that uh, was bothering him. I always love those shots from the full yeah. <laughs> But uh, Jonathan Silverman, who's a dear friend of mine, had worked with Jack on something prior to it. And he said, look, I just want to let you know, just to like tip you off. 
as soon as the director calls action for every take Jack does, he says, magic time to himself. So I, I wasn't sure if Johnny was pulling my leg or what. So I said, oh, okay, I'll just keep that in my, my hip pocket just in case. Kind of forgot about it, you know, in the presence of when I met Jack and we're going to shoot the scene. And I was, because I love Jack Lemon was one of my favorite actors. And then uh, to the scene, he had his face down in the pillow. Action. And all I heard was magic time from <laughs> underneath the pillow. And it almost threw me off of the sense of, okay, here we go. But yeah, every take. Um, but I mean, that to me, I don't even remember the dialogue I had. And I know it was very little in that scene. Um, but that scene was basically just a Jack Lemon monologue. Um, but again, just honored to be in the presence of working with actors like that. Hey everybody, let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. I want you to take our audience <clears throat> through the process of when you have something in your mind that you want to deliver on the set that's not in the script okay. and how sometimes that can hurt you and how sometimes that can change your life and it can almost change a series or be a part yeah. of a series that people talk about forever. So there's times in your life where you've gone in and you've winged it and it hasn't gone well. Right. For instance, you talk about in your book when you had an important meeting with Jeffrey Katzenberg <laughs> and it was going really well. And then you just decided to do something a little different. Decided to try and be more Dan Cortez. And then, you know, that killed that meeting and you didn't get the project. Yeah. You talked about how your instincts were to do something and sort of a little unique in the Gatorade thing. Didn't get it. But then there was a time on Seinfeld where you were playing a role, which is the famous Mimbo, Mimbo yeah. Man Bimbo. Yeah. <laughs> and you improved a line. Now, on Seinfeld, what was odd about it was on Curb Your Enthusiasm, Larry so, yeah. encourages the whole show to be that kind of thing. You know, yeah. he'll give you a bullet point here or a bullet point there or 
listen, call Jeff a fat fuck here. He's not going to know it or whatever. Yeah. But on Seinfeld, it was not a loosely written script. There was a script. Right. And it was rewritten and written and rewritten and written and put a lot of effort into it. Sure. And the last thing that I think Larry would think or Jerry would think at the time that the host of MTV Sports is going to improv a line that's going to not only change the show, get in the show, but something people talk about for a long time to come. Could you tell our audience about that whole story? Sure. The, and how you got Seinfeld to begin with. I, I had, uh, my manager at the time got a call. Who was your manager? Uh, Ray McKigney. I was at Three Arts yes. uh, Management. And his, uh, he started as an assistant there. And the woman who he worked for, who was a manager there, was Lori David. Uh, who at the time was Laurie Leonard. And, and Laurie Leonard was a great manager. Yes. And Ray, when he was her assistant, would constantly take calls from this gentleman named Larry David in New York that would always ask Laurie Leonard out for dinner. Laurie Leonard is Elaine Bennis is based off of Laurie Leonard. She would always turn down. <laughs> Laurie Leonard used to wear, I remember, and you tell me if I'm wrong. In her heyday, she used to wear the sort of the cat glasses. Yes, like. correct. The um, so when her sister Ray became a full manager at Three Arts, he was that's who I signed with. Um, he it was contacted from um, Mark what's it, Mark Schwartz. Who's the I believe it's Mark Schwartz was the casting agent there um, for me to come into audition for the specific character. So that following night, I they didn't send sides or anything. I went in. Uh, to to meet, and I thought I was going to read. They were going to give me something there, and I go in meeting, and it was Larry and Jerry saying, "Come on in." Couldn't have been nicer. Sat down, talked for maybe ten minutes. Everything's going great, laughing, and uh, then finally I was like, "So, you know, do you have some sides or anything you guys want me to read, or what exactly should I do?" And Larry just looks at me, and goes, "No, I just needed to see if you could put two words together." So I look back at that now and go, I don't know if that was a compliment or if that was an insult. <laughs> insult. He goes, I just need to see if you can put two words together. I want you to do this. We'll see you tomorrow. So, so this was kind of like curb in the yeah. sense that he didn't even give you a script. No. When you got there the next day, was there a script? There was a script. There was table read for the episode. I, the next day was shooting. It was the first day of the week. So I, and it was the first episode of a, a sitcom I had ever done. So and Seinfeld was also my favorite show on TV at the time. So I went in there just like, you know, eyes like saucers. And so the Seinfeld, for those <laughs> you don't know the technical side of it, I'm sure most of you do, but some of you might not. Seinfeld was shot like a hybrid. So there were scenes that were shot on the stage where it was a traditional four camera shoot, similar to like the old days that started with I Love Lucy right. all the way through every show you can imagine. But then half of it or parts of it or sometimes all of it, whatever, were shot single camera like a film right. outside on the lot on New York Street or <laughs> sometimes in, in different sets. Yeah, You got the best of both worlds. You'd worked on a film set, right. so you knew the single camera side. Exactly. Tell our audience what it's like walking onto a stage where there's a four camera shoot and there's a director directing that and you're not used to that on right. the floor. So we had the first day was a table read, obviously what it sounds like, you, the entire cast and all the writers sit around and you read the script out loud. Uh, we didn't rehearse after that, read it once, everybody go home. Come back Tuesday uh, and we start rehearsing. 
So one of the things that made the experience um, so much easier for me was everybody from Larry to Jerry to Jason, all the way down. All those actors were so uh, open and helpful. It was just they were all so into the creative process. There were no egos, really. Everybody laughed the entire time. So to get to your initial question with the the line, um, we were probably two or three days into rehearsing. I can't remember what the scripted line was, uh, but it wasn't working. And Larry didn't like it. Um, so he kept saying they would try. Hey, they had a list of five or six different lines uh, for me to you know tell George. Basically, I'm trying to tell him to get the hell out of here, but we need something that's funny. How do we say that? So Larry looks at me and just says, all right, you're MTV guy. Give me what would what would an MTV kid that watches MTV? What would a kid that watches MTV say? So I can't even recall, but I think it was the third or fourth thing I said was step off or I said step off. Jason Alexander then goes almost in character. Step off as George crew laughs. Larry goes, say that. Do that. Just say step off. That works. And that's as simple as it was. It wasn't like because I always tell people, I go, I don't want to claim because Jeff Garland approached me at a charity event uh, one time, said introduce himself. And I was so flat. I'm like, wow, I love Jeff, love him on curb. And he said, you know, Larry told me that was that was your idea. You came up with that. And I said, as much as I'd like to say that, hey, I I rewrote a line on Seinfeld for Larry David. I go, it didn't really work out that way. He asked me for some, like, what were some things kids would say? And that was one of the things I said. Jason said it a specific way. Larry liked it. So it was very loose uh, like that, where it's like, we're just trying to find the funniest thing possible. There's a scene in there where, because George's or uh, Jason's character has a schoolgirl crush on my character. So we're sitting at Monk's there at, at a booth and we're rehearsing just night in front of the uh, audience. And I have a backwards ba- or I have a baseball cap on New York Giants baseball cap on that I switch around, put it on backwards where I ask him if he wants to go rock climbing. And he has on like a baseball cap, but it's a hunting cap. And so in between takes, he looks at me and goes, what if I, does this funny? Jason asked me, is this funny if I turn my hat around when you turn your hat around? And you know, he's bald and he's got this little hunting hat and you could see his bald spot. I thought it was hilarious. So he goes, Larry, after Dan turns his hat around, then when I say my line, I'm going to turn my hat around like this. And Larry just looks at him and goes, no, I don't, I don't think it's funny. Like that. So he says, okay. He's like, don't do it. Don't do it. We'll try. Maybe we'll try later. Don't do it. So we go to shoot action, shoot it front, And Jason does it anyway. And they had to edit it because it was, I think they had said it was like a 20 second laugh with him just turning the hat around before he could even deliver his line. And I remembered Larry coming back after that and goes, fuck you. And he's laughing. It is just like, OK, you know, good job. Like, you got me. But um, that whole process and that whole experience was just like, imagine the relationship you have when the guy who's running the show, yeah. who wrote the episode, you clear it with him. He says, no, uh, maybe later. And then he just does it right away. <laughs> and it works. And it worked. And it was, um, you know, it was a great Great learning experience for me. And you know what, too? It was one of those, by the end of the week and after we shot, I was sad. I felt like, and 
probably not for everybody else. But I felt like I had connected with these people and created this bond with the cast. Like, and I, I don't want to leave. I, you know, I want to be on the show. I want to hang out with you guys. Years later, I was at a Italian restaurant in Beverly Hills with some friends having dinner. And somebody, our waiter came by or somebody told us like Jerry Seinfeld is actually, if you guys know Jerry Seinfeld is eating in the back. And this was probably seven, eight years after I shot that. And my buddy I was with is like, go say hi to him. I'm like, I'm not going to go up to Jerry Seinfeld and say, hey, do you remember me? I was in an episode of your show. And I said, no, I'm not going to do that. So uh, we're eating dinner and uh, apparently Jerry was done with dinner and had to walk by our table to get out. And as he walked by, he hits my shoulder and goes, step off, Dan, and kept walking. And that scored me. So didn't stay to talk, just said it and kept walking. And everybody at the tables looked at me. I was like, that's right. Jerry Seinfeld remembered my name, at least for that night. But that was that uh, scored me some points with the three guys. That was what there. an amazing way to acknowledge somebody, make them feel like a million bucks. Yeah. yeah. But in the shortest amount of time. That's all he needed to say. <laughs> it was the, the perfect thing to say. Yeah. Incredible. Don't hang out and say, how are you? What's going on? Let's have an awkward conversation. That was perfect. Yeah. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to the podcast. I want to talk to you about an amazing documentary that I worked on a few years back called I Killed JFK, which was unlike anything I ever did in my life. It's centered on a man who'd been in prison for 30 years, who's the only person in history to have admitted to killing Kennedy, and his story is unbelievable. He started as a runner for the mob. He was hired to drive two hit men from that city around Dallas, and he ended up being the guy who calibrated their weapons. And he was there that day with one of his own and took the fatal shot that killed John F. Kennedy on the grassy knoll. His story, the footage, the interviews, never been seen before. You can't find them anywhere else except on this documentary. So go to barrycats.com to the merch page and buy the documentary with the rare interviews of the five greatest historical experts in the world. So just go to barrycats.com, the merch page, pick up the documentary and interviews, and I guarantee it will reverse the way you feel about what happened that day in 1963 and change your opinion of the government and how it works and alter the way you think about things forever. Lastly, I want to talk to you about something really impactful and it involves something really close to my heart, self-education. You see, throughout my life, I realized that every success I've ever achieved in my career has come from the education I received from my experiences in the business. And I truly believe that we all have the knowledge inside of us that others would kill for. And by sharing that, we can open up an entirely new world of possibilities for ourselves. That's why I'm so excited to tell you that I partnered up with my friend Tony Robbins, who's been number one in this field for 40 years. Along with his team of experts, Dean Graziosi and Russell Brunson, they'll show you how to take that valuable knowledge in your mind and turn it into an incredibly profitable mastermind workshop or event, just like they have and continue to do in their careers. And they're launching a new training program that's literally changing people's lives by helping people like you be a part of this $129 billion a year business. So it's an incredible opportunity for someone like yourself to build your own business, share your knowledge, 
and help and serve people in a huge way with the guidance of Tony Robbins, the best in the business. He's actually going to teach people like you how to make big money and build a successful business. So if you're ready to take your life to the next level, they're doing a free live training session, barrykbb.com. That's B-A-R-R-Y-K-B-B.com. Look, I've done over 440 free podcast episodes of Industry Standard, and because of your incredible response, it's reinforced my belief that we're morally obligated to share and pass on our knowledge with the world and help other people in those ways. I truly believe this, and I really love this groundbreaking training program and how it can turn your knowledge into an extraordinary amount of money. So just go to barrykbb.com, that's B-A-R-R-Y-K-B-B.com, to this free training session with the best in the business, Tony Robbins. I guarantee you, it will change your life forever. As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. You get all the money Drop that fancy car All the people love you Cause you're going far Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over Till it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave Down in the valley Fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.